Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is the beginning of the Berlin series of podcasts for the Berlinale 2022, which has begun, and there are a lot of films to talk about. But to embark on this series, I'm very pleased to be joined by Jonathan Romney. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. And how are you this fine festival? Well, I'm very well. <laughs> um, it's a very strange festival because the mm. last time we did this, we were in Venice <laughs> and right. it was warm and sunny and we were sitting outside on a lovely hotel veranda <laughs> right. and the birds were tweeting, the sun was shining. And here, of course, as it always is in Berlin in February, it's grey and it's cold. But the weird thing also is this year that there aren't that many people around. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's great about this year is that it has happened because last year we were all watching the films online um, but this year um, a lot of people stayed away the festival is shorter in any case mm -hmm. uh, but also I know a lot of people have stayed away because they were very nervous about uh, not so much about getting COVID, but because the COVID regulations are so strict here and, right. you know, in Germany you're still doing, if you get it, you're still supposed to quarantine for 10 days right. and touch wood once again. Um, but it, it's been quite a strange thing, you know, having yeah. to go in every morning, get your test, wait for the result, run to get a wristband. And, and and also, in some cases, it's happened to me this morning, show my passport in order to be able to get a coffee. Um, so it's been a very unusual festival. Yeah, yeah. A special extra touch that means so much. Yeah, bringing back the spirit of Checkpoint Charlie. <laughs> but yeah, you have that nice little suspense before you even see a movie every morning when you do your check. But I, I guess at Cannes you had to do it, was it daily? Or well, in Cannes you had to do it every two days. Two days, um, okay. They had a different system there where you had to go in and spit into a tube. And because it was very hot, I wasn't actually able to generate enough saliva every day. And by the end of the festival, someone told me, you know, the great tip is just Google photos of, you know, hamburgers or whatever. Um, and that worked? And it worked at first. Um, but actually here, what's great is they do this incredibly fast production line yeah. when you go in. And then you go to the cafe across the road and the baristas are making your flat white <laughs> so precisely and cautiously, you know, as if they were preparing <laughs> batches of coronavirus vaccine. <laughs> you know, it's completely upside down. <laughs> it's all part of the all part of the, the daily routine. Um, but it, it doesn't get in the way of, of, of seeing the movies I've, I've found. I've definitely been able to pack up my days as usual. And, you know, I guess the festival started pretty strong with movies that people were anticipating with the Claire Denis movie here, a Ulrich Seidel movie there. Um, but I thought we could start off with a competition film, um, and that is the Seidel movie, uh, Rimini, mm -hmm. um, which you saw and I'm trying to remember if you liked it or not. I did. Of, yeah. um, it's actually one of the stronger films so far in the competition that hasn't been extraordinary. I mean, I have to yeah. say last year was extraordinary. It was it just was, good yeah. film after good film. And this one is, is sort of much more patchy and much more feels like, you know, a traditional Berlin competition selection, which can often be a bit stodgy. But yeah. Ulrich Seidel 
Um, very good. Um, you know, the downside with this film, Rimini, is that it is so typically a seidel film that you're not really surprised at any point. But given what he does and how he does it in this film, uh, it's very strong and it's maybe his most enjoyable film. So it's about uh, a kind of clapped out lounge singer um, called R Richie Bravo. <laughs> um, who seems to have had some success in the 60s or 70s. Right. Um, I would say that he's kind of, you know, that sort of, you know, Euro chanter, um, <laughs> you know, a touch of Johnny Halliday, a touch of right. Demis Roussos, uh, but very, very Austrian. Yeah. And um, he's got this house in Rimini, which he clearly bought, you know, in Italy on the Adriatic coast, that he mm -hmm. clearly bought when he was successful. It's got a kind of, you know, 80s kitsch, kind tack of. quality <laughs> to it. And, and now everything's gone wrong and he's got no money and he's been drinking too much and he's really put on the weight. But he's still playing concerts to, you know, elderly admirers who are also paying to have sex with him. Right. So he's kind of working as a gigolo on the side. <laughs> and he's also renting out his villa while he goes and sleeps in a deserted, out-of-season hotel. It's a really kind of depressing vision of the world, as is typical for Seidel, <laughs> and it's a really depressing life. But this actor, Mikhail Thomas, who he's worked with before mm -hmm. in Import-Export and, Import and in his oh, Paradise right. trilogy, yeah. Um, just goes about it with such gusto and there are these wonderful moments where he comes on stage in these sort of ridiculous gold suits yeah. and he does this kind of cheesy smile and sort of flirts with you know these elderly women in the audience and you realize there is a kind of grace to what he does. Mm. It'd be way too easy just to have him be the the butt of the joke you know in every scene I mean he just genuinely pours himself into it and doesn't step outside that character or, or make fun of it. He carries himself well enough in the first half hour, I mean, Richie Bravo does, that you think, actually, maybe he's just sort of figured out his, his place for now. And obviously, you know, it, it's not really sustainable. And I guess we can say that there is a development in the second half uh, when one of his, when, when his, I say one of, because I suspect there might be others, but his daughter appears. And this is where the movie, I think, takes the kind of sidelian turn of sort of confronting you with, yeah. Yeah, because <laughs> she's trying to get money out of him, yeah. which he doesn't have. And he goes about getting it in such an appalling way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, you know, you've, you've, you've been suckered into thinking, oh, this is a really nice guy. Then he does these dreadful things, and yet there is still this kind of naivety and innocence about what he does because it's yeah. done out of desperation and yeah you know and and also in a way because it's in character yes and her boyfriend i guess i think he's i think he's syrian and actually there's a really interesting thing there i thought because this is something that has in common with the alan girodi film which we'll get oh. to talk about mm. but that has these Arab characters who are suspected of being terrorists. Oh. And it's done in such a way that, you know, you think, oh, are these kind of stereotypical images? Right. Or are these filmmakers kind of taunting us with stereotypes mm -hmm. through the eyes of these other characters? And are they taunting us with the assumptions? And it's really interesting because at the moment, 
there is this problem about, you know, how do you depict racism? Mm -hmm. And if you depict people being racist and saying appalling things, as uh, Richie Bravo does in the first five minutes of this right. film, you know, he, he, he sees these Muslim characters walk by and sort of instantly sort of spits out a kind of contemptuous al-Aqwa. And you think, well, certainly many in many cultures and in many cinemas, we, we probably feel very, very cautious about, right. about joking about this kind of thing. And mm -hmm. I think certainly what Girodi is doing in his film is he's kind of daring us to think, wait a minute, is this, is this a... Is this an Islamophobic film? Is this a racist mm. film? Or is it about racism? And it's sort of keeping us mm. guessing in a really interesting, uncomfortable way, which I think a lot of people will be very mm. uncomfortable with. Right. There is one very funny moment, though, which I think kind of makes things kind of plain about, about where Seidel's coming from, where he goes, Richie Bravo goes to visit his elderly. Austrian father in old people's home right. and the old man who, who has dementia is singing what is clearly a Nazi era yeah. song, you know, anthem to the, the power of Germany and he's trying to drown him out by singing, right. you know, like Ciao Bello or something over yeah. A Mi Amore. Yeah, some Italo pop. Yeah, and, yeah, and that, in that part of the movie yeah, I just had this feeling of like you know, imperialist Europe or something you know, that's having some kind of last gasp. It is true that you don't know exactly how to feel about um, because his daughter has a Syrian boyfriend and also just a kind of bunch of friends that also live with them and and go with them are, are kind of like their their crew in a way. And I guess it was sort of the depiction of, of that that was I was wasn't entirely sure what to think about. And then we get to see, you know, how Richie Bravo responds to it, which is with a kind of, you know, despite being this kind of smooth, smooth talking lounge singer, he has a very like bourgeois suspicion <laughs> of them immediately. And uh, so in a way, typical sidle, not on like safari level of inflammatory, <laughs> um, but, you know, definitely playing with a little something there. But I agree that the father character does kind of reveal where Seidel is standing on the whole thing. Um, but maybe we could go right back into uh, Nobody's Hero since, since you um, brought it in, which is the Alan Giraudy movie. His first since, I don't even... Well, the last one was called uh, Staying Vertical. And he's also, I think, since then, written a novel, huh. which I haven't read, but apparently is, you know, outrageous okay. in the extreme. <laughs> um, and, you know, he also has, you know, he likes to kind of test people's yeah. uh, tolerance for outre sexuality, sometimes involving elderly men, um, young, it's often sort of young men. Uh, being, being, right. you know, very attracted to these rather kind of portly elderly <laughs> men. You don't get that in this one, but he certainly kind of pushes the sexual envelope. With um, Noemi Lvovsky plays uh, a middle-aged sex worker. If you know Noemi Lvovsky, who yeah. always plays, she's a director, and she usually plays sort of. I don't know, sort of head teachers and yeah. she, you know, she does a lot, or, or, or people's right. mums or aunts and things like that. And in this, she, you know, she really kind of goes out on a limb. I mean, she has these sex scenes which are just very funny, but completely no holds barred. So it's about this sort of nebbish uh, of a young, sort of middle-aged guy who falls for this slightly older woman who is a sex worker. And... 
weirdly, there's um, a more sort of stereotypically attractive woman in the film who who is actually his boss at a computer company mm-hmm. who has this complete passion for him and says, why can't we sleep together? You're such a hunk. And he's not, you know. And um, so, you know, Giro D likes to, to just... yeah mess around with you know what the hell is actually going on and then he takes in this young guy who's sleeping on the street but might or might not be responsible for a bomb oh, terrorist right. attack mm-hmm. in the town of Clermont Ferrand so so he's kind of playing with sort of paranoid commonplaces mm-hmm. of contemporary French society it's set in Clermont Ferrand uh, famous for its uh, film festival of course. <laughs> and it's it's very strange landscape. It's got yeah. lots of hills. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because I guess that's another thing that, you know, about his, his movies is where he sets them. It's like definitely not in Paris. Because that's also, I guess we can sort of segue to another French comedy, which I think we both love, <laughs> um, which is set, where, where is Incredible But True set? It's really hard to tell. Yeah. It's set it's, well. It's set somewhere, you know, in the wilderness of Quentin Dupieux's brain. Yeah. <laughs> so this is the latest from Quentin Dupieux, who made Mandibles, which is about sort of two idiots who find a giant fly in the back of their <laughs> car, and Deerskin, which is about a man who becomes obsessed with his tasseled suede jacket. Um, Not just and, any man either. Uh, um, Jean Dujardin. Right. <laughs> and, and the question of this film is. You know, actually, how much can we reveal? Oh, about, right. Because it's about this couple who move into yeah. a house which has this extraordinary feature. And one of the kind of the jokes in the film is the estate agent keeps saying, you're not going to believe it. It's incredible. And they go, well, what is it? He says, it's well, I'm going to tell you. And it's constantly deferring. What, yeah. And they said, but I have to tell you, there's something else about this thing. And he goes, what is it? I said, well, it's amazing. I'm, I'm not kidding you. you know, and he kind of keeps on... <laughs> And, that, and so bit. if we were to say now what actually happens in the film, mm-hmm. which, of course, some reviews have already done, mm-hmm. but it would kind of be spoiling the joke. I guess um, that's true, yeah. But suffice to say that the thing they find in the basement is not just a thing. It's also a kind of philosophical conceit, in a mm-hmm. way. Yeah. I, I just found this movie a complete joy. He just clearly is trying something new, you know, mm. every every 20 minutes. Um, and it, it's a little bit like watching. I mean, I'm sure other people have compared aspects of his buffoonery to silent comedians. For me, I would make the comparison because just that same hunger to try another gag, you know, mm. try another conceit, you know, some little, you know, comic contraption and how that works. I really appreciate that because that was a skill, you know, that was a mm. huge thing uh, coming up with the gag, with the, this, this situation. Um, so he does that, and as an, yeah, there's another sequence I also don't want to reveal because once you realize what's happening, it's just <laughs> it goes on and on. It's wonderful, and um, I guess we can talk about the actors. That would be <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, um, it Alain Chabat is in it. He's a very mainstream French comic actor, mm-hmm. very yeah. long box office career, um, and he's worked with Dupieux before, and he's very good. But the person who really stands out is Léa Drucker, who is not maybe the best-known uh, mm-hmm. contemporary French actress, but she's been in a lot of films. She's worked with Mathieu Malric, she's worked with loads of people. Yeah. And she gives a fantastic performance as you know the woman who discovers she has this thing in her house right. and then becomes completely obsessed with it, mm-hmm. but in a way that's very much about who she is and her 
right. idea of what her life could be or what her life should have been. Mm-hmm. And it's about, and actually, it becomes very eloquent about self-image yeah. uh, and aspiration. And she plays it brilliantly because she plays it completely straight. Mm-hmm. The other person who's really good in it is Benoit Magimel <laughs> as this really obnoxious guy who's Shabazz's boss. Who I think can, I think we can reveal what his thing is, can't we? <laughs> that one? <laughs> I guess so, why not? <laughs> well, he's got a kind of electronically controlled prosthetic penis. The only trouble is... If anything goes wrong with it, it can only be fixed in Japan. Yeah. <laughs> I use the word contraption for a reason, I guess. Well, I, you know, what was actually funny is that just a few weeks ago on Saturday Night Live, they had a gag that was sort of that gag, basically, which was basically like, yeah, a malfunctioning, <laughs> you know. And yeah, and this it fits his character perfectly because he's like this kind of small time manager who's backslapping type. Of course, this is what he would do. <laughs> this is, of course, what he would brag about. I guess you do get to a point with this comedy where if you describe some of the jokes, I, don't, I think they play better than you describe could, could describe them. Yeah. Um, and we should also say that, you know, Dupieux always comes across as being a bit Bunuelian. You know, Mandibles, <laughs> I thought of as Bunuel's Bill and Ted. But this one really is, there's a very overt Bunuel homage in it. But it's funny. I mean, it's almost like it's Bunuel without the baggage, you know, in a way, is is what he does. I have to admit, I haven't actually been along for the ride for all of Dupuis' films. I was down for Rubber, then, you know, up for Deerskin and um, Mandibles. Um, This one definitely, uh, definitely like. I don't know. Oddly, I don't, not that this means anything, but I feel like I haven't heard people talk about that, talk about this film that much here. Have you noticed that? probably not. Yeah, I don't, I mean, is that just because it's like a comedy? I mean, I don't know, because it's like really good. Mm. But uh, yeah, anyway, that's incredible but true. So, you know, nice lighter lighter side to the festival. Also, you know, coming from France, I guess, is, you know, definitely not a light piece of work, uh, is the Claire Denis movie, which we should probably just talk a little bit about. Fire, a.k.a. Both Sides of the Blade, a.k.a. What's the French title again? Amour et acharnement. I thought they dropped fire, but everyone's referring it to... to but it's the official... calling it fire for years, but now it's... I think it's the other side of a blade, but maybe people are now calling it fire semicolon the other side <laughs> of the blade. <laughs> and, and the title itself is... It sim- seems to be taken from the Tinder Sticks song in the end credits. Oh, I thought it was the other direction. I thought he wrote a song for the, for the, for the movie. Um, which came first, Trouble Every Day, the Tinder Six song, or Trouble Every Day, the title? Who knows? <laughs> Who knows? You could never tell with Claire, didn't you? Yeah, it's true. But I think it's it's getting released as fire in in the U.S. for for what it's worth. And this is a resurrected love triangle, <laughs> in a way. Almost treated as if it's like a horror movie, in a way. You have Vincent Lendel and um, Juliette Binoche are the, you know, comfortable middle-aged couple He's a he's an ex rugby player who's spent some time in prison, but I'm not sure we're ever told why. Yeah, and she is a radio host, which actually is a second radio host. We'll get to another radio host later. But then Gregoire Collin, who is Gregoire Collin, <laughs> just just as his job, um, materializes, rematerializes. He is the old flame from Pinochet's past and unleashes this chaotic obsession in her um, that just completely destabilizes their relationship, her, and him as well. So did I take the measure of that? Is that? <laughs> yeah, I think that's about it. Yeah. Um, 
It's really hard to know with Claire Denis films because one of the odd things about her work is that it, they take a while to get used to mm. and sometimes films that you really don't like that much on first viewing, a couple of years later, they seem to be prime Claire Denis. Like, I remember really not thinking 35 Shots of Rum was great and now it seems to have become one of her absolute... It, it's her, her quintessential film, maybe. But uh, I'm not sure about this one. And one of the weird things is it's so much in that classic terrain of, you know, the bourgeois French relationship drama. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's a, it almost feels like a follow-up to the film she made a few years ago, which was a kind of French bourgeois relationship comedy, again with Juliette Binoche, uh, which was Let the Sunshine In. Also co-written with the novelist Christine Ongo. Right, 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 yeah. And I almost wonder whether to some degree, you know, because Ongo is famous for writing novels that are directly about her own sort of traumatic oh. emotional life. And I wonder whether in a way these two are more Christine Ongo movies than hmm. typical Claire Denis films. I had a few problems with it. And, and I like the sort of fragmented nature of it, which was typical. I like the fact that in the, the kind of confrontation scenes, and not even in the most intense ones, she gets you right into the character's face. She has mm. these very extreme close-ups, yeah. which kind of heightened the drama. One of my problems was that I just didn't think there was anything going on with the Grégoire Collin character, who mm. kind of comes in and sort of lurks and looks kind of smooth and arrogant, yeah. but you don't quite see a character there. and. A problem also I have is is with Juliette Binoche, who who you know goes the full mile in terms of emotion, but it's sort of bizarre. You know, she's she's done this before in certain films where her character goes into a sort of you know it's sexual hyperventilation. Mm. You know, so she just sees Colin and she she is triggered. You know, she just mm-hmm. goes into this frantic, uh, this kind of uh, uh, frenzy. And, you know, it's a sort of set of emotional conventions that make perfect sense within French cinema, but you very rarely encounter, or at least you hope not to encounter, (laughs) in real life. And it it, it doesn't quite make sense. So, you Mm -hmm. know, it's playing very much almost as a kind of generic French relationship Mm -hmm. drama pushed to an extreme. I mean, the person who who I think works brilliant, you know, and, and Binoche does give a really extraordinary performance, but not necessarily one that made entire sense. Whereas Landon, I think is very good, you know, and he's very kind of nuanced and restrained. And actually, you know, anyone who saw him, you know, completely out of his comfort zone in a very weird role, in the very weird Titan, may be kind of, you know, if you're a kind of, A classic Vincent Landon fan. You may actually be relieved to see him doing something that's <laughs> right. more, you know. But he's he's very good at this, indeed. Yeah, yeah. suffering strongly and silently. <laughs> yeah. Again, uh, yeah, he's 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 very good uh, in it. I mean, you just feel really sorry for the guy. <laughs> he's very successful at arousing that that emotion. And yeah, it's it's a Claire Denis movie without the usual kind of slipstream editing structure, really. I mean, I agree, Gregoire Collin is more of a phantom in a way than he mm. is a, a flesh and blood uh, character, um, which is sort of reminiscent of other films. Yeah, ours. and I actually wish that she would sort of move out of her 
comfort zone mm. I mean, as far as the music is concerned because you know tinder sticks you know always very nice but they're always tinder sticks yeah. and you know i'd like I'd like her films maybe to sort of sound a bit different from time that to time. That is interesting. It, it's good you mentioned that because that's actually like a defining feature of the film because the way the movie opens is with this kind of ominous chord that just gets held f- like forever. <laughs> like m- I think like multiple scenes even before something else comes in. And it was sort of a daring thing to, to try to hold it like that. Um, but it's true. In a way, it's the same. It's a language you kind of know. But, you know, of course, I'll take a... I'll take this Claire Denis movie over any any number of others. But yeah, that's that's fire. I think you mentioned a movie that I was curious about, just so we can talk about a non-French movie for a second, A Piece of Sky, mm. if you can talk about that. Yeah, it's a really interesting Swiss film. I saw this one, it's one of those problems, it's by- um, Go One Country called. East. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Michael Koch, it's his second film. It's in Swiss German. It's set in the Swiss Alps in a small, Alpine community and it starts off you think you're going to get a rather kind of folkloric view of village life the opening shot's incredible it's just this rock Hmm. on a hillside over this sort of vertiginous um, valley and there's a choir singing beautifully you get this Swiss choir singing absolutely beautifully all through the film so you think for a moment it's going to be you know behold the wonder of nature as in that terrible Terence Malick film you know the a, a quiet life or whatever it is oh, a hidden life right. and actually what you get is a story about this couple it's a young woman who uh, she's a single mother and she's lived in the village all her life and she has a young daughter and then a guy who who works in the village and he's this big kind of muscular quiet guy who he's sort of quiet and tender barely says a word very undemonstrative and she loves him uh he's regarded with suspicion by the village people because he's from the lowlands you know <laughs> so he's from a different altitude so clearly <laughs> You know, gotta watch that guy. Of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they get married, and then things start to go wrong. You know, mm. he has health problems, and then there's a thing at the end, which, or further on, which is actually really shocking. But the way it's presented is shown in this very kind of low key fashion. The camera just sort of drifts past it mm. as it's following another character, and you think, wait a minute, what did we just see? And then she kind of doubles, does a double take and walks back mm. to have a look. And it's quite startling, but it's not like, boom, a capital R reveal. Right. It just kind of drifts with this, you know, the whole film kind of drifts in a very sort of glacial sort of Swiss pace. I found it very affecting. It actually reminded me of a film, which I'm going to have to look up in a minute, which was the sensation of... Berlin the first time I came here mm. and it was about a firefighter maybe you'll know the one I mean it's about a firefighter mm. who has an extramarital relationship Sehnsucht or Longing by Valeska Griesebach mm. and it was the year that suddenly people went wow German cinema is happening again it reminded me of that and the only trouble is it is it's this fantastic miniature and it works brilliantly, but it's been kind of inflated to two and a quarter hours. And I suddenly thought, if uh. he had made this film at 100 minutes, say, or even 110 minutes, it would have been a cast iron masterpiece. Uh. As it is, 
it kind of drags, but there's real beauty and I think there's real depth in it mm. and the way it deals with people in landscapes and tradition, but on the other hand, modernity. So, mm -hmm. for example, there's one scene at the wedding, mm -hmm. w which is in this church, and he does this extraordinary thing because, you know, you don't see... Uh, the couple who are getting married, you see other people in mm. the congregation, and the camera starts gliding out of a church. It glides up the aisle, mm. out of a door, and you see the kind of traditional band gathered to play, you know, these sort of brass serenades when the couple come out. But what you actually hear is this kind of banging disco beat, <laughs> and it cuts straight to the after-wedding disco <laughs> where they're playing that song by Hadaway. <laughs> um, Saturday night, I think, and it's you know it's really incongruous. And then there's a sort of weird thing. Suddenly, out of the blue, a Bollywood camera crew turn up oh, to really? shoot this dance scene on the top of the mountain, and <laughs> it's the only moment that is kind of wildly incongruous, but it kind mm. of works because the woman is seeing this kind of super idealized image of love, oh. which is not her experience but it's a really really interesting really affecting film. it's one of the best things here mm. but unfortunately just sort of hampered by this rather unmanageable length hmm. i'll have to catch up with that one a piece of sky so i mean we have a couple of choices i guess uh passengers of the night or the Godard Golestan. Oh well, thing. we could we could definitely do both. Oh, I mean, okay. uh, uh, we can do them quick. The Passengers of the Night is about another French film by <laughs> Michel Herz, and it's you know it's not extraordinary, but it's by a director who has a particular tone, and he makes it. He, yeah. His last film was Amanda, and he makes these small you know relationship dramas, mm -hmm. usually with kind of ensemble casts, and yeah. this one is set in the eighties. It's got uh, Charlotte Gansburg as uh, the mother of two teenage children who has separated from her husband and is now kind of starting a new life. She gets a job working on a late night radio show hosted by Emmanuel Bayard. <laughs> and uh, the family adopt this kind of waif played by Noe Abita from Ava, um, right. who is this kind of goth waif and the kids kind of hang out together and they go and see uh, Eric Romer's Full Moon in Paris. <laughs> and the film has these clips of, you know, archive clips of Paris in the 80s, including a glimpse of Jacques Rivette on the Metro. Uh -oh. So it takes the thing, as I was in Paris in 1983 and 84, and I was seeing all these films by Romer and Rivette when they were coming out. And of course, you know, like everyone, I was completely in love with Pascal Ogier. <laughs> and, and the film is, is, is a sort of love poem to that period. And it's really touching and the thing that's really interesting about it is it's a coming of age film except it's the coming of age of the mother played oh. by Charlotte Gansburg and yeah. it's really you know and it, it's beautiful it's about home and it's about the city and it's about parenting but it's done with this real real kind of grace you know he doesn't sort of look the nasty stuff in the face I think he kind of shies away from that so the idea that the kind of goth girl has a heroin problem mm -hmm. is resolved with remarkable ease. Yeah. But that's sort of not what he's about. He wants to he yeah. wants to talk about people, you know, loving one another. Yeah. I mean it's it's sort of it's sort of elegant in that way. It doesn't feel like it's 
just avoiding it's sort of um, somehow elegant it's sort of modest without being chased in a way so yeah I, I appreciated that and it was also interesting seeing Gainsbourg in that role just because she's also so soft-spoken it, you know it makes you realize the very particular couple of modes that she has of her she's in the kind of like fluty half losing her voice kind of mode and this one is very distinct from intoning kind of mode that I don't just remember hearing re- most recently in Sundown um, for example. But yeah, it is true. It's she She's the one who is growing the most over the course of the film. So that's Passengers of the Night, and that's in the competition. And then we have See You Friday, Robinson. Uh, and this is a movie that stages... It's it's basically an epistolary, epistolary friendship. It's sort of two people got set up as friends. <laughs> um, and those two people are uh, Godard uh, and... Ibrahim Golestan? Golestan, yeah. What do you yeah. make of this? So Golestan is um, a legendary veteran Iranian filmmaker um, who I believe turned away from cinema to mm. become a novelist mainly. And I think he's now well into his 90s living in the UK. believe he's still alive since the film was made, but he's living in this extraordinary house which is like Xanadu. I mean I'm assuming this is actually his house. It is massive, you know, it is a palace. Yeah. And he's absolutely, you know, clearly has a sort of he has health issues in the film, but he clearly has a sort of razor sharp brain. And anyway, the film sets up a kind of a dialogue, an exchange of emails between him and Godard, who sends him weekly, they sent for weekly email exchanges between <laughs> Britain and Godard's Swiss eerie of Rolle. <laughs> and you see Godard in the film as well. So Godard is sending him these typically enigmatic messages, which sometimes consist entirely of quotes from Dashiell Hammett or James Joyce. Sometimes they consist at one time there's a kind of blown up detail of Golestan's handwriting and all through Golestan is thinking what the hell is he trying to say to me but he's being very funny because at one point he says I think this man is very pretentious and I also (laughs) think that you can tell he has been influenced by his Catholic upbringing or something like his Christian upbringing rather but you know He's clearly sort of much more level-headed than Godard and is kind of outthinking him, but Godard mm-hmm. is just sort of throwing him these curveballs, which Golestan accepts with good grace and, uh, and wit. And then Godard is seen in Rolle in his house, shuffling around in shorts, smoking big cigars, and at one point doing the iron. He's ironing all these shirts. Yeah. To what effect, one is not sure, because he never seems to wear an iron shirt. They're all kind of crumpled yeah. anyway, in sort of old T-shirts. <laughs> but Godard seems to be having fun, and Golestan certainly does. And it's really touching, you know, and it's, yeah. about, it's about old age and infirmity, and it's also about, well, what do intellectuals do mm-hmm. when... You know, they're when they're having trouble get yeah, when they're yeah, when they're having trouble getting up and down the stairs. Yes. But they have that stock of you know, of memories and literary reference. It's it's very unsentimental. It's very and the film itself is not in any way reverential towards no. them. It's just kind of allowing them to uh play this game which they're having fun with. Yeah, and I really appreciated that. And I think that's the only way that I don't know, you could really or should really do this This movie is, is having to have some perspective on them without like 
trying to like excessively ennoble them as these like old lions or something or you know they're just sort of getting through the day uh it's just for them getting through the day involves like for Godard just like this this like thicket of quotes that are constantly you know bubbling up to his brain that just he's just puttering around and he'll just throw out some quote um you get glimpses of his workspace i feel like this is a movie where it's very attuned to showing you like aspects of their creative space that yeah. i like like his his desk where he has just we know he paints but we also just see, i think i saw like just markers like colored markers there just all this stuff that are at hand for him to to sketch which is so yeah. much part of his uh, movies now and still endlessly worrying about one particular clip in Johnny Guitar which yes. he seems to quote <laughs> over and over again yes yeah yeah and yeah and on Golestan's side it's they, that that is also has on a very human level you see Golestan a lot with his wife and the movie's also very frank about the role she has in kind of helping him structure his thoughts or guide his thoughts a little and mm. so I like seeing those kind of you know intellectual partnerships um, so that he, he isn't just speaking ex cathedra all the time it's like what did I want to send can you like draft something for me um, so I like seeing that so yeah it's it's a movie that honestly going into it I was a little wary because it I thought it was going to be one of these like exercises in like reverence which is generally how people approach Godard and it it does something a little a little different uh, than that and also just a side note, manages to kind of imitate or kind of riff on his jarring editing style. Oh, it feels like a Godard film, and it actually has that one piano chord Mm. that I think it's from Beethoven, and he endlessly uses it, and it throws it in. You know what he's done in the last films? He'll throw in that one chord, dang, (laughs) and that's out of the blue, and then pull out. And yeah, it feels it feels very Godardian, yeah. and I think I don't know who knows it may also have a touch of Golestan in there as well. But you yeah. do see you do see a bit of Golestan's own cinema. Yeah, there. and the Godard, I guess, maybe partly attributable to the fact that if I read the credits right, I don't know the sequences in his house were shot by his usual cinematographer uh, Fabrice Aragno. Yeah, um, so that's you get a kind of covert <laughs> Godard movie, uh, mm. or you know, covert co written by Godard kind of movie. But yeah, it's true. His partnership is completely invisible because you do not see hide nor hair of and Mayville in, in the house. So I don't know how to read that. But uh, anyway, we can we can end with uh, with that multiple creative partnerships going on there. Uh, see you Friday, Robinson. And there's still plenty of films left. We'll end there. Um, thank you, Jonathan, as always. Uh, well, thank you. And I hope it's been a pleasure. I hope uh, the next time will be somewhere warmer. Yes, <laughs> for sure. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. Please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music. Thank you for listening. Thank you.